Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card, issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. From the American Museum of Natural History in New York City and beaming out across all of space and time, this is Star Talk, where science and pop culture collide. This is Star Talk. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, and I got with me my co-host Chuck Nice. Hey, Jack. hey Neil, tweeting at Chuck Nice Comic. Well, thank you, sir. Yes, I follow you. Just, oh, just, I follow you too. Love your face. To the ends of the earth, <laughs> whereas you only follow me on Twitter. Earth has. I'm no... following you to the gates of hell. You're following me. Like maybe I'll like this. Maybe I won't. Uh, earth has no ends. It's a continuous surface. In case you hadn't noticed. See, that's why I follow you. <laughs> <laughs> This program, this particular episode, we're going to talk about the roots of mental toughness as they resided inside former national security advisor to the President of the United States, Susan Rice. Mm. And since we're talking about mm. mental toughness, yes. we need we need our, our go-to person. Expert. We a need a, a, go, a, a, a person who's mental. Um, right, we need somebody <laughs> mental. I gotta go. <laughs> we got Heather Berlin. Heather, welcome. You're, you're our go-to mental person. I'm happy to be the mental person of this group. And, yes. Right, and Thank you. you're one of our uh, featured people on Star Talk All-Stars. It's just great to have you in the Star Talk family. I'm happy to be here. As long as we don't, we're not a pain always reaching for you <laughs> for this, but it's just always good to have you. Just a little bit of background on Susan Rice. Uh, she came out with a book called Tough Love. Tough Love. And she was National Security Advisor to President Obama, yes. 2013, mm. 2017. Right. UN Ambassador. Mm -hmm. for, so the United States has an ambassador to, to the, the UN, UN, as distinct from ambassadors to other countries Correct. of the world, right? right. And uh, she was a Rhodes Scholar. Wow. And so uh, she went to uh, New College at Oxford, and she's author of the memoir Tough Love, Mm -hmm. My story of the things worth fighting for. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she's 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 got the pedigree. She got the attitude. She's got the, the you know. She's ready to. She's ready to rock and shake, roll. Shake 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 that up. Mm -hmm. And so she credits some of what she's accomplished. I would say a lot of what she's accomplished to how she was raised mm -hmm. with tough love. Tough love. So let's mm -hmm. check out that first clip. Tough love. This kind of title 
like we say of our grandparents. So are, you're not a grandparent yet. God, no. Okay. <laughs> well, then, so when you up there naming a book, like what the grand, because grant, it's, that's a previous generation's. Are you dogging my title now? A little bit. Come on, man. A little man. bit. Just, you know what? Bit. Everybody I know knows what tough love means. They do. The young they do. people know. Even the young people. Hell yeah. Okay. Young Certainly people. my young people know. I'm, <laughs> That's different. I'm kicking their it. ass. No, no, no. <laughs> no. The young pe- And all the young people who work with me know what it means, too. <laughs> because I, last time I saw their upbringing, they get a trophy for participating. There's nothing tough about not, their Not life. in my household. That's the point. <laughs> so to me, it means loving fiercely. But yeah. not uncritically. And, you know, when you mess up, the people who love you are supposed to tell you straight up, you know, that your stuff is not together. I think that's the polite term. And there are many families where they're always bolstering each other's efforts, even if it has failed. And you're saying if someone is failing, you get on there, you tell them how and why. With the aim of helping them do better. Do better. Not just to beat them oh, down. Right, 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 right. But I'm just contrasting it with uh, the fear of telling, being truthful with someone because you might hurt their feelings. Yeah, we, that was not a familiar concept <laughs> in my household. <laughs> so, you okay. know, my parents raised me and my brother very much in the vein of tough love. And my, for better or for worse, my own kids have own inherited kids. the same. All right, well, they, they seem to be doing okay. They're doing okay. So How far. old are Knock they Knock on wood. So one's a senior in college and one's a junior in high school. Okay. So they're, and they're doing okay. They're so far. So guys, what do you think of her definition of tough love? I mean, I think it's a unique definition. And what we normally think of, at least in the field of psychiatry, as tough love is, you know, when somebody is kind of really out of control or they're, let's say, a drug addict. And it's about... I mean, literally out of control. Like out of They don't of control. control their own lives. Yeah. yeah. And it's about then coming in with harsh enforcements of um, restrictions. So, you know... That's it's, not what she said that she had? Well, I mean, she has more... There are different types of parenting. So there are three different types of parenting. One is Ooh. authoritative. Authoritative. One, one is authoritarian. And authoritarian. the other is permissive, right? So yeah. she's more... Just what I think she's describing is authoritative parenting, which is that you're demanding, you have high expectations, Ooh. rules. Lots of, lots of structure. Lots of structure, but you're also responsive and like connected emotionally. Whereas authoritarian, uh, authoritarian you is do what I say. That's it. That's and there's it. no, you know, it's Get your ass over here. purely punitive. <laughs> Who the hell are you talking to like that? <laughs> All I said was yes, sir. <laughs> so, 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 but so, yeah. <clears throat> so her way, which is mm-hmm. not authoritarian. Not authoritarian. Not dictatorial. Right, like, but a, like totalitarian. Yes. Why should we assume that would work for everyone? Wouldn't that just fall flat for some people trying to grow up? Boom. Mm-hmm. And see, that's where, mm-hmm. I, when you said, how do you feel about her? And I said, I would my response was going to be, it's fraught. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I think it's fraught is because children are individuals who respond differently to different stimuli. That's what I'm asking Heather. Right, right. So it, there's studies fail. that show, yeah. So basically, it's all about the combination of the personality type of the child with the type parenting. So there's no one right way to parent. Uh-huh. Um, and every type of parenting, there's articles that say that it's really good or it's really bad. And really, the key factor is how it interrelates with the personality. And it's the same thing with learning. Like, for example, some people need really restrictive um 
ways to learn, like being tested all the time and having structure, and they work really well in that system. Others don't, and they need a more sort of permissive environment where they can learn on their own. So it's but the what's same described thing here is there was one way everybody got raised. Right. And it either works for you or it doesn't. Right. And so in some cases, depending, and also cu- there are cultural differences as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, depending on the culture. One of them that is the that some people go, mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, for example, for example. Did your culture go, mm-hmm. this not, not fly in my house. <laughs> that no. was not one of your cultures. Um, no. But like, for example, authoritarian or like sort of um, very, very uh, restrictive parenting works better in Asian cultures because that's part of the culture. They find that that type of parenting, whereas in the U.S., for example, they get worse results with that kind of parenting because it conflicts with the culture. Yeah, exactly. So you have to be careful when you're imposing other sort of cultural standards that work in one place um, here. It might not work. However, you know, sometimes it's it's when you look at cultural. Now, Mm -hmm. I I will just say this, and people are going to, uh, be maybe we'll uh, just uh, edit it out. Yeah, yeah right, right. <laughs> I, I was going to say I'm going to say this, and it probably won't even be heard. <laughs> but the more what is perceived to be permissive in many cultures are the way Caucasian parents, white people, mm-hmm. actually let their children do pretty much anything. But I see that there are some benefits to that, mm-hmm. where the child feels emboldened to try things. And be more adventurous. So, you know, there's... So the permissive type of parenting has its own advantages. So it does encourage independence. The idea is that you um, sort of create an environment where the child can make their own decisions and that they'll be more prepared for life. But on those kinds of parenting, you get you get more people who tend to be more impulsive, mm-hmm. yet... Um, at the end of the day, they are better when it comes to sort of making their own decisions. And and so, you know, every, as I said, every type of Give parenting has pluses and minuses. Right. Yeah. So when kids are born, there should be some little readout on what kind um, of upbringing they, that, that genetic. Eventually. Need. Yeah, eventually, yeah, maybe. Eventually, yeah. You go, boop. Yeah. Okay, this one needs, you know. Exactly. Oh, and we if you ever, are going to be beating your ass every day. <laughs> Here's a really good one. <laughs> Let me tell you something, mister. <laughs> a really your backside's good. in for a real tanning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm letting you know. Wait, let me, um, I, a really good example, though, what? is if there's this film called Three Identical Strangers mm-hmm. with these triplets. Documentary. Documentary. Um, and they were separated at birth. And it was an experiment that was obviously this should never be done, but they they did this where they an experiment them, where none of the parents knew none of the parents or the children yes. knew what was happening. So the same exact DNA, but they put them in three different um, households with different socioeconomic statuses, different types of parenting. Wait, this is legal? This was not legal. No, oh, okay. no, no, no. This yeah, okay. was not. A, this is the kind of stuff her people do. Did, no, <laughs> okay? it did. So it wasn't know. me. Okay. <laughs> not anymore. I didn't say you. I said your okay. people. Hi. Look, he's like, he's like, look, the the most physicists will do is give you a nuclear bomb. That's all. That's all. That's what most people do. Where hurt people, they're doing human experiments. Exactly. Exactly, but Chuck. Was, <laughs> but what's interesting and what right, they so kind of low socioeconomic, uh, middle, middle class, and an upper class. Yeah, but they also had different types of parenting, and I think it was like the lower SES or um, you know was more permissive what and the, a, a socioeconomic status. That is okay. Um, the highest one I think was very distant, cold, and restrictive, mm. and I believe that. That, um, unfortunately, that child ended up um, committing suicide. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so now, wait basically. A minute, but I'll tell you why. Here's why. Yeah. Red Fox said it first. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> Elizabeth. Elizabeth. <laughs> oh, God. Red Fox said it first. Red Fox said when, it first. when asked, how come black people have such a lower 
suicide rate than white people. You right. said it's hard to kill yourself jumping out of the basement window. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh my god, that is so oh funny. Oh my god, that is so funny. That I is am terrible. Sorry. That is amazing. That was Red Fox, nineteen sixty nine or something. So hard to kill yourself jumping out of a basement window. I'm coming to join you, honey. But I'm oh walking upstairs. All right, we gotta keep going. Oh so, so she also credits her ability to tackle difficult situations to playing sports. Ooh. Mm. So there's a whole social thing that goes on in sports. Mm -hmm. It's not just the contest itself, but the interpersonal dimension of it. Mm -hmm. So let's find out what she says about this. I was very much a tomboy growing up, and I was really into sports. And you know, my idea of fun as a scrappy kid was playing you know, football with the boys uh, or basketball on the neighborhood court. But that evolved into um, playing varsity basketball as well as varsity tennis and a little bit of softball in high school. And I was a much better tennis player, and I am a much better tennis player than I ever was a basketball player. There's, there are a lot of myths out there about me. The only good one is that I was a really excellent basketball player. So people want to believe you were good at basketball. People have circulated a myth that I was a great basketball player. But Not in true. fact. Not true. In fact. In tennis. fact, I was a mediocre basketball player and a pretty good tennis player. Cool. Okay. And still play tennis. So what did it do for you other than that you had it taught me. It taught me how to really compete and to lose, but also to win and to want to win and to lead a team. Um, and I spent a lot of time describing the role of, that I had as national security advisor as being akin to playing point guard on a basketball team because, uh, one, that was my position to when I was playing in high school and later in graduate school. Um, Isn't the captain usually a point guard? Not necessarily. No, I think about not it. Necessarily. Okay, just wondering. All right. I mean, but on the court, that's in fact often the role that the point guard's playing because they're mm. seeing the whole court. They're calling the plays. Right. They're dishing the ball for the most part to the Putting the ball the into shooters. motion. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and uh, you know, making sure that the, the, the stars, who usually those with the, the great outside shots are the ones you know, under the basket or putting get it the in. the opportunity. Yeah. Now, then you get your, you know, your your extraordinary point guards who do all of the above. I was not one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really a huge growth experience playing both tennis and basketball. Here's what I wonder. Are, is, is the personality type that we see among sort of athletes, is, did that develop by them being athletes? Or did, was it always there and now... It attaches to the fact that they have great athletic performance. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like what came first, the chicken or the egg. I think certain types of people the egg are... Came first. The, it did it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's been answered. <laughs> Thanks, Go, sorry. I got that. Okay, <laughs> I'll just check. It was just, it was just laid okay. by a bird that was not a chicken. Oh, See? okay, got it. Okay. Uh, See, you didn't know that. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, and there's like a mutation, and then what comes out of the egg is what you would call a chicken. Right. Uh, the way the egg was not a chicken, right. and that's the first chicken. Got it, is got it. So a cow laid an egg. <laughs> <laughs> you know, certain people with personality, you're born with the genetic predisposition to have certain types of personality traits, and those might be more attracted to certain types of sports also, you oh, know. Okay. So it could be that you are more into playing with a group and a team, and, you know, you like that aspect of I it. I must know what personality right. attracts to golf. 
I, I a really boring okay. one. I don't know. Sorry. But the mental discipline, though, it takes, like, you know, just to play golf even or, you know, any sport. It's all a mental super discipline. Mental, yeah. Super yeah. mentally tough. Absolutely. And so you, you need that. So I think you come to it, those at least who excel in sports, come to it with certain genetic predisposition and then they develop it even further. So I think it's the discipline. It's being able to control your emotions under pressure, high stakes. Ooh. That's another So it's trait. not just control over your body. No. It's control mostly over control over your mind, I because think. Because baseball is 90% of baseball is half mental. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Yogi Berra. It was entirely Yogi Berra. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's being able to have the discipline to practice, but also to control your emotions under high stress to rebound from losses, right? You know, so if something happens, you lose a point, you get an out, you have to be able to get right back on there and not be kind of Which are good life off. skills. All good life skills. So I think, you know, you, you're, you're attracted to a sport for certain reasons, but then you develop these skills along the way. Okay, yeah. so but without sports, you still mm -hmm. want to be mentally tough. What would right. be, what's a what's a pathway if you didn't do sports like Susan did? What's interesting is that you can actually, when we talk about mental toughness, we're talking about when you're sort of emotionally aroused or have a negative emotion, how you can kind of, um, in a way, suppress it and keep going on and, and not let it kind of defeat you. And so we studies have shown that actually, mindfulness and meditation increases parts of the, particularly the left prefrontal cortex, which works to downregulate the amygdala. And so those people who, who can sort of sort of overcome trauma. The amygdala is part of your brain? It's part of your brain yeah. involved in emotion. Fight or flight. Fight mm -hmm. or flight okay, response. Mm -hmm. And so it's resilience or mental toughness is really about how we can overcome these negative emotions and go on and, and sort of reframe things in a positive way. And we find that if you have more activation in the left prefrontal cortex, you can do that. One way to do that is through meditation. Mm. So, so what if, uh, just as a question, like for developing mental toughness, mm. what if adversity and uh, failure mm -hmm. actually, so of course everybody feels bad and they're angered, right? Mm -hmm. But what if that is actually fuels better performance? What you, so what well, you're saying is that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right. right. Please comment that, on okay, that. Okay, Suppose okay. that makes you, like, you know. So there's there's a sort of optim. We all need a little bit of stress that actually helps us increase our performance. And there's, there's sort of inoculation, a little bit, you know. So it's all about the amount. So a little bit will get you to the sort of we call optimal state of arousal and increase and improve your performance. Too much, however, mm -hmm. well, will become the word arousal? Okay, detrimental. I mean, okay. yes, like physiologic, <laughs> physiologic you know, stimulation. Stimulation, okay. exactly. So you need right, a little the cortisol. Be really awkward. <laughs> not be good for. Um, but Man, yeah, you really like this game, buddy. <laughs> but we all so know I, this. I got a good yeah. example of this, mm -hmm. if I may. Mm -hmm. uh, a track buddy of my father. My father ran track. Uh, he, uh, they were competing against the New York Athletic Club. Okay. All white, all wasp of the day. Right. And he was no part, Jews. No, not in that club. <laughs> in the in his club, Pioneer Club, they picked up everyone who was not admitted to the New York Athletic Club, which were blacks and Jews. So my father ran alongside Jews. Apparently, not anyone from your family. No, <laughs> but, the Berlin's but, don't play sports. So right, so right. so right, so there's still a racial dimension to this, as there was to so much in society back then. It was deep, deeper than even today. Right. As mm -hmm. much as anyone complains, it was worse. It only encompassed everything. everything. Okay. And so, so the coming around the back stretch, my guy, his name is Johnny Johnson, is ahead of the the runner from the New York Athletic Club. And on the back stretch for the final straightaway, the guy from the New York Athletic Club. Johnny Johnson overhears him yell to his runner, catch that nigger. <gasps> wow. Oh right. my God. And Which, so, by the way, is shocking today, but back then. Back then, it was like, like, yeah, of course. Okay, that's, that's, yeah, just, right. that's what that happened. Was just, ah, that's just that. Right. And so he said, 
this is one nigga he ain't going to catch. <laughs> and then right. increased his, his win. Yeah, it, it, that gave that incentivized. Yeah, motivation yes. exactly. Yes. So, so too little is not good. Uh, just enough for right. But if he, let's say, got really angered by that to the point where mm-hmm. he was so enraged that he kind of his his performance could have oh, been it injured. could subtract. Yeah, if, too if it's fired too up. much, yeah, too okay. much. So God, just okay. enough. Right. Yeah. So you grew up in a Jewish household. Yes, I did. So was so, sport, sports. Therefore, I did not play sports. <laughs> <laughs> therefore, <laughs> it's just not part of our. So culture. it's really true that scene in the movie Airplane. Where oh. the flight attendant, then stewardess, mm-hmm. um, was had reading material, and someone seated there says, mm-hmm. "I just need something light," and she mm-hmm. said, "Well, here's a pamphlet on famous Jewish athletes." That's exactly. That's exactly. The Sandy there's Koufax some, was Jewish. Just yeah. So you know. Okay. Very important. I mean, there's exceptions, but you <laughs> right. know, in general, yeah, the, the stereotype is is legit. I was never very good at any and sports. Chuck? Yeah. No. Not at all. <laughs> Damn y'all! Not you know what? Had I, I known this know. before this episode, <laughs> I would let both your asses out in the street. I didn't even, I didn't even watch it. I was like, God, this is exhausting. What the hell are they doing? What's the whole point of this? No, I, I did. I played several sports, and and but I didn't like it because I was forced into playing sports because my father was a really accomplished athlete. Another way to say it is you didn't have the mental toughness. That's right. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> That's what I, exactly what I was thinking. That's another way to That's say another, that. Just, I've been taught right, in the last 20 minutes <laughs> here and, and, uh, with and our woman, cool. Heather. Mm. She's telling us what's going on. Did down. you play sport, Neil? Yeah. You played everything. Oh, you played everything. You were well, I, Oh, you were like wrestling. Yeah, I used That's to wrestle. Right. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I rode. I also danced. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I played basketball, street ball in the Bronx. Mm. And here's the measure of things, just mm. so you know. If it's a five-on-five choosing sides... How, where in that ranking are you chosen? Mm. Oh, see, I was okay. always first. First? Wow. Yeah. Okay, no, I was never first. But I was oh. like fifth. Oh. So I was like midway in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. But then I spent a year up in Lexington, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And I went to the playground there. And we played ball. And I went to jump to block someone's shot. Mm-hmm. And I blocked it with my elbow. And I realized I jumped much higher than was necessary to block mm-hmm. this person's shot. Because my elbow blocked the ball. Nice. <laughs> so they all thought I was some amazing basketball player when it was average. And it average. turns out you were just black. <laughs> <laughs> Funny how that <laughs> That sounds like we need to go to commercial. <laughs> Coming back more with my interview with former National Security Advisor to uh, Barack Obama, Susan Rice, who's got her new book, Tough Love. And we're just expl- we're unpacking the, the tough love and how all that came about. And uh, we'll talk more about that when Star Talk returns. Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with their no surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com slash guarantees. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. 
And that's good because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on site restaurants. That's me too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Bring everyone together for a great time with the Nintendo Switch system. Get the whole family in on the fun with exciting games that everyone can enjoy, like Super Mario Bros. Wonder, Animal Crossing, New Horizons, and more. Nintendo Switch has three different play modes all in one system. Play in TV mode, tabletop mode, or handheld mode when you're on the go. Visit nintendo.com slash us slash switch to learn more. Games rated E for everyone. The future of space and the secrets of our planet revealed. This is Star Talk. Back to Star Talk, Chuck Nice. Yes, sir. Heather Berlin. Hello. Heather, give me your full title because when you first came on, I didn't. Oh, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist and assistant professor of psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. See, that's why I could not. Bada bing. There it is. It. Drop, drop, <laughs> the drop the mic. Drop the mic right there. Right there. Like, We're done here. That's I'm, out. I'm out. See that right there. <laughs> I don't have to play a sport. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so my interview with uh, Susan Rice, former National Security Advisor to the President. One, we're talking about mental toughness, mm-hmm. a, a, a running theme in her book, Tough Love. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in there is also just how do you deal with stress? Mm-hmm. Mental toughness is one thing to just come back from failure, but how about just stress? Mm-hmm. How about, you know, if you're trying to keep peace in the world, mm-hmm. there's no greater source of stress right. than geopolitics. So, and, and the Obama administration, like mm-hmm. so many, uh, was not short on crises. So I just asked her, what were your challenges mm-hmm. in that role? Let's check mm-hmm. it out. So I think the hardest part of the job of National Security Advisor is the number and the weight of the issues that you're confronting at any given time. I mean, it's it's almost overwhelming. It feels, I describe it as like a slab of concrete lying on your chest and then they just put more and more bricks on it and you still got to breathe. So, for example, in my first six months of the job, this is beginning in Ju- uh, July 1st of 2013. The day I got in the office, uh, the Egypt blew up and a coup occurred, which we didn't actually term a coup. Uh, Edward, this was the Arab Spring. This was after the Arab Spring, Arab but, Arab. but yeah. In, then Edward Snowden... Uh, was in the middle of doing his nasty, releasing, you know, alleged uh, U.S. government secrets. Um, we had uh, the war in Syria 
evolve into uh, the the use of chemical weapons and the challenge over the red line that President Obama drew uh, as to whether or not we deal with the chemical weapons through the use of force. Um, we had, um, you know, a extraordinary uh, secret negotiation going on that led to the Iran deal. We had secret negotiations going on that led to the opening to Cuba. We just had all these things. This was day one. First six months. But day one was Egypt and Snowden. (laughs) And, and, you know, and that's not even giving you the whole picture of, you know, what we were dealing with. But the crush of those issues and the import of each of them and if, you know, the the downside of failure for our security and our interests on any given one of those was quite daunting. So, Heather, what kind of people handle stress better than others? Uh, Well, there's actually been some studies which find that there are some genetic differences. So, we all have, it's adaptive to have a stress response. So, you have, it's, you know, what's called the HPA axis, but, you know, that fight or flight response gives you some. HPA stands for what? um, The hypothalamic adrenal, uh, no, no, wait pituitary adrenal axis. So basically it's it releasing um, norepinephrine and epinephrine and then also you have cortisol. So that kind of gets you going when you have to run or fight something. Mm-hmm. Um, we all have that and that's adaptive. But then what comes in next is how do you handle it? How do you go back? Wait, I, I got Yeah. before you continue. Uh-huh. So the idea that when you're scared, you pee your pants. Right. Okay. Is that from birds? Um, because, <laughs> what? No, no, because a bird... If you if you scare a bird, a bird poops and then flies off. Okay, right. right. So right. they don't no. want to carry extra weight. But actually, no, it's the reverse. So when the sympathetic nervous system is aroused, we actually, it restricts so you become less likely to basically crap your pants. <laughs> Why does everyone talk about pooping your pants? That's interesting. I don't know where and that actually came pants. from. But physiologically speaking, that's Everything not... Everything tightens up and it, it stays tightens in. It tightens up, it stays in. It's not the time to be doing your business when that's you got to run. Yeah, so, excuse me while I... <laughs> so, <laughs> but usually it's However, right. <laughs> i got to tell you the truth. It yeah. might help if you were... A little lighter. actually crap your pants because I don't want to do anything with you once you do that. Oh, <laughs> oh that might be a way to get the animal hey. to run away from you. Oh. I see, I see. They don't like your stank. But what happens (laughs) is, okay, so you have this response, everything sort of restricts, and um, but then the parasympathetic nervous system kind of kicks in, which kind of relaxes everything and calms it down. And that's how people respond or deal with stress. So, Genetically speaking, some people are more what we call resilient. They can respond to stress and and kind of calm down their nervous system. Can this be trained? Um, So with certain techniques, behavioral techniques, we call it, it's a biopsychosocial kind of phenomena where there's some biological aspects, there's some things in your environment that can help you. Um, But really- so I guess let me tighten that question. Okay. Does more exposure to stress make you better at stress the next time, or does it make you worse? There's a theory that it's called about inoculation. So in small doses, um, so that the whole thing, there's, there's actually a great book called The Coddling of the American Mind, about mm-hmm. how you know we're protecting our kids so book. much. Yes, yes uh-huh. exactly, Jonathan Haidt. Um, and it's safe spaces. Yes, yeah. Greg Lukianoff. Okay. Um, and basically, you know, we're creating these safe spaces. We're protecting our kids. We're trying to allow, allow them to have any anxiety. Um, but actually, it's good to have it in small amounts, to have a little bit of adversity. Adversity. Just a reminder, the safe spaces are you were warned in advance that someone might say something that would trigger you. Yeah, exactly. And then so you avoid it. Exactly. Okay. Which is not really good, psychologically speaking. What we want to do actually to decrease anxiety is called exposure. The more you expose people, you can train the brain and the body how to respond. And so then when something, let's say, really traumatic happens, you'll be more prepared to handle that. So in small doses, it could help you. But in large doses, it could really... 
it could hinder you. It really and, mess you up. and we also find that like, especially during um, youth and childhood, if you're exposed to high cortisol levels, it actually yeah. affects the way the hippocampus, the part of the brain involved in memory develops. Mm-hmm. Um, but we find that, so people who are traumatized early in life have smaller hippocampi, but in, later in life, you can actually try to regrow those neurons um, and exercise. Aerobic exercise the is hippocampi one thing. is plural of hippocampus? Yes. Okay. The hippocampi checking. is plural. Mm-hmm. Very, yes. Um, but exercise. I was a big man on the hippocampus. Did I tell you <laughs> that? Oh, my God. <laughs> I feel like I've heard that joke before. <laughs> that hurt. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that hurt my prefrontal cortex. Yes. <laughs> well, so, so I had to ask Susan, how did she cope with the stress? I had to ask her. Let's find out. The other challenge was... How do you not just deal with all the crises in your inbox, but how do you also, as I say in the book, put points on the board, get affirmative things done that we chose to do that we thought would be beneficial to the United States? So, for example, like negotiating the Paris Climate Agreement. We didn't have to do that, but we chose to do it. That was an affirmative uh, But you want your job to be more than just solving problems. You want to actually be proactive right? and be remembered for doing something progressive or positive. Exactly. Right. So those were the two big challenges. And then in terms of my background and what prepared me, I mean, first of all, I was fortunate to have had a series of jobs in the run-up to becoming National Security Advisor that had given me a real insight into the work and the, 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 you know, the issues and how to navigate. But I also had learned as a child something that I found was really invaluable as national security advisor, which is to be able to compartmentalize, um, you know, the painful, tough, wrenching issues that you got to deal with from, you know, when you come home and try to be a mom or a, a daughter or a wife or whatever it is, and not let the weight of those issues literally prevent you from sleeping, exercising, functioning. Oh, oh my gosh. You know, as a normal It wasn't just a bad day at the office. It was a bad day (laughs) on planet Earth. Exactly. (laughs) And you know, you learned some stuff in that job that you really wish you didn't know. Bad day in the Western Hemisphere. Right. So I actually learned that, as I I explained, through enduring my parents' really ugly and, and violent divorce, and yet still trying to, you know, perform in school and you know, be a good student, play on my sports teams and try to maintain my friendships that, you know, focus on what you have the ability to control and don't let that which you can't completely control cripple you emotionally or psychologically. Mm, compartmentalizing. Mm, yeah. Is there a downside to compartmentalizing? Because yeah, I would wonder, so my, my most creative mm-hmm. thoughts come when things kind of, when the spillage right. from one thing to another. So is it possible to over-compartmentalize? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it is an adaptive defense mechanism because, you know, if things are stressful and overwhelming, but you still have to function in society or at still got to eat, Right, food, you can yeah. kind of suppress, well, one technique is to suppress or repress things to the unconscious, but compartmentalizing is you sort of put, put it, it in a different there. brain state. You only can access it when you're one state and not the other. Mm-hmm. which temporarily works. But we see psychiatric illnesses where, in a sense, they're over-compartmentalizing and that they actually split into these different... It used to be called multiple personality disorder. Now it's called um, identity... What is it called? Identity disorder. Um, but they basically, the idea is that you now start forming a whole other identity that's associated with those traumatic oh, thoughts. That's and the memories. limiting case of this. Right, and then you can't access them. You can only access them when you're in one state and not the other. So they become sort of almost so separate that the information flow isn't there anymore. Um, and 
then you kind of dissociate is what we call it. So dissociative uh, I, identity disorder. That was there. The you go. Yeah. Uh, so what is what are ways people learn to cope with difficult situations when they have to function in the rest of their lives? Is it's compartmentalizing the only way, or is there no. some? Oh, so so there are a number of defense mechanisms, and we all kind of tend toward one or the other. Like for example, people who are highly intelligent use intellectualization as a defense mechanism, yeah. right? So you can kind of—I like. can't imagine who that might be—but <laughs> you can kind of over-intellectualize <laughs> no things away. <laughs> um, but the, but that's a more mature defense mechanism. So there's more mature ones, and there's more primitive Sweet, ones. More <laughs> <laughs> now tell me about the primitive one. The, the primitive. <laughs> right. The primitive ones are less sophisticated. So they'll be just like where you automatically repress something or relegate it to the unconscious, um, where it can then come up in other ways, right? It, it can percolate. It can percolate. Un, Psychosomatic. Uninvited. Un, un, un Uninvited, exactly. Mm. So then, you yeah. know, these classic cases with like Freud described of these psychosomatic sy symptoms, all of a sudden you have some weird twitch in your arm or, you know, it comes out in other ways. Mm. So I think they're, they're more adaptive types of defense mechanisms um, and they're ones that can be more problematic. But they all taken to the extreme can become problematic and create psychiatric illness. Mm. All yeah. right. The idea, I mean, the real goal is to integrate the uncomfortable memories and anxiety-provoking thoughts into your consciousness in a sort of neutral way where it doesn't disturb your daily well, But We just raised a point. Yeah. If you have a really uncomfortable memory, mm -hmm. why not suppress it? Um, because it will come out in, as in other, other ways. But so suppose I suppress it so effectively, yeah. it'll, it'll never come out. Maybe for years and years and years, and then right. 10 years later, all of a sudden, right. you have like some major just, panic attack because right. you were triggered by something that was like deep in your unconscious. So the best idea is to reintegrate that memory in a neutral way. That's so, what therapy So it doesn't does. lurk. So it doesn't right. lurk in the background doing weird mm, things and okay. affecting your behavior outside of your awareness. Okay, so what, you, it want never fully goes away. you want leaders to be able to... To be able to, to not have something lurk. That's oh, right. In yeah. the wrong that's moment. Right. Sounds like a good thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not to have lurking leaders. Yes. <laughs> God, exactly. why does that sound so good? Like basically, when you have lack of insight. Lack of, <laughs> lack of insight into your own unconscious processes is really not great. So, mm. you know, just being sort of ignorant and blind to them is, is not a good policy. All right, well, we got to take a break. But when we come back, we'll get into the anatomy of national security when Star Talk returns. You know what shouldn't feel like rocket science? Planning a vacation your whole crew will love. With Carnival Cruise Line, it's all up to you. You can kick back or dive right into the fun. Paddleboard in the crystal clear waters of one of Carnival's exclusive destinations, Half Moon Key in the Bahamas. Take an ATV ride through the jungle or just relax on white sandy Caribbean beaches. The fun continues on ship. From a ride on the Bolt roller coaster to a moment of pure bliss at the Cloud Nine Spa. Kick off the evening with a craft cocktail at any of Carnival's dazzling bars and lounges and take your pick of restaurants from surf and turf to family-style Italian. Then settle in for an evening of live entertainment. Whatever your vibe is, you'll come home with plenty of stories to tell. So pack those bags, be sure to leave room for a few unforgettable memories because no one does fun like Carnival. Book your dream vacation at carnival.com. Ships Registry, The Bahamas and Panama. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. You saw the potential. And through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Bringing space and science down to earth. You're listening to Star Talk. We're back. Star Talk. In this segment, we're going to talk about the future of national security, featuring my interview with Susan Rice, former. National Security Advisor to Barack Obama. And since we're talking about security, we bring in somebody where that's what he does for a living. Stephen, Stephen Garcia, welcome. Thank you. Your first time on Star Talk. It is. And you're 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 kind of local to us. Yeah, yeah. So we can we'll come pull you back. Yeah, yeah. We'll totally pull you back. But I'm definitely a fan of the podcast. Excellent. <laughs> so you're expert on data and cybersecurity, chief information security officer at Consensus. Very cool company name. Uh, what is it? A blockchain. Blockchain, excuse me. Yes. Yeah. Blockchain software tech company. Very nice. And advisory board member for Rutgers University's Big Data Program. Yes. So, Big Daddy, Big Data. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he put on his business card. Big Daddy, Big Data. <laughs> so, let's go hit the Susan interview, yep. and then we'll come right back to yep. you. Do you have a sense of the direction of the future of security, national security? You know, is it how many soldiers do you have lined up on a battlefield, or is it how many programmers you have to protect your your cyberspace, or is it how many scientists and engineers you have to innovate? I mean, so the 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 profile of war is evolving. Yes. So, wh- what do you see the future if you had a crystal ball, given your life experience? Well, I'm, I, I hate to traffic in crystal balls, <laughs> but uh, I, would, I would say several things. One, the domains in which conflict can occur um, are evolving. So, you know, we think of fighting as being on, a, on, on the ground or in the air or on the sea, but it's also increasingly, as we discussed a, a little bit earlier, in space, undersea, 
in the cyber domain uh, and uh, and elsewhere that are very hard for the average American to envision. And also, those domains are already active uh, battle spaces, at least in theory. Those are the physical domains. Then there's the means uh, of combat, potentially. And that's where things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, data, uh, you know, biotech and, and, you know, CRISPR come in. Because all of these are ways in which the nature of the tools that we have to um, engage in combat, potentially, can change radically. And then the question becomes such moral issues as ones of agency. Like, do we ever want to have fully autonomous weapons? So, what happens when an artificial intelligence outsmarts the people who built these weapons? Yeah, so, Stephen, what, what kind of security risk do we face today as a country? Cybersecurity yeah. risk. And what should we do about it? I mean, to, to start based on what Susan said, I think, I think we don't want autonomous weapons, right? Thank like you. Every major sci-fi movie we've seen has talked about it, right? 2001 A Space Odyssey, mm -hmm. Tron, all the Matrix movies, Terminator 1, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. This is known, right? <laughs> like, like, um, we just kind of can't let that happen. We just, want, right? we just want ordinary people giving the command to kill yeah. rather than yeah. machines giving the command to kill. Yeah, I, I think that's a appropriate. I like that. I like that, I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if Chuck wants to drop bombs, I think I got a chance to reason with him versus a machine. Unless the machine has a higher level of reasoning than you do. Yeah, and in which case we're all done. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we laughing? <laughs> <laughs> I know, this is completely <laughs> That's the point where the machines say humans are no longer useful to right. the survival of this world. Exactly. Right. I mean, we, we do tend to make irrational decisions, which can be good and bad, right? But I mean, we have empathy, so that's... But, but sometimes we might choose, in terms of numbers, to kill more people because of an emotional decision yeah. versus a rational one. Yeah. So but, I think but, working but, with the but together. Why wouldn't AI also have those same emotional profiles? In principle, if they're like us, except better versions because of Because they us. don't actually feel emotion. We can program in an algorithm, but the actual feeling of, say, you know, sadness or pain or empathy, I don't think that they will ever have that. How do we know we just, that wasn't just programmed into you? Because um, I have subjective experience. I think, therefore, I am. I feel <laughs> like it. <laughs> so what should we be doing? Well, so to so her point, too, right, we have new theaters of war, right, C, right? Your boy Bill Knight, he's on a show called Blind Spot, where they did a whole episode on some hackers taking over a satellite that was weaponized, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, back in the Reagan time when we talked about Star Wars, it felt like sci-fi and it was out of the realm of possibility, where now, maybe not so much. Um, most of the world's data travels through... But wait, just to be clear, yeah. Star Wars under Reagan, because yeah. most people alive today yeah. were not yet born when Reagan was president. Fair enough. You're not referring to the movie series. No, no. You're referring <laughs> no, to no, please. That's the government sci program. That's proper sci-fi. <laughs> the, the, the floor of monies to yeah. create a, a, a fail-safe, foolproof defense system yeah. to then render the Soviets' weaponry Absolutely. Uh, obsolete. Okay. Uh, but it, it doesn't need to just remain defensive. It can be offensive, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Mm -hmm. With this new age space race, with satellites going up into space, that's another theater. Uh, the undersea water cables getting tapped for information. That could be a, another big source of national security. So we're going to be moving away from marching armies to defense of cyberspace. Yeah. And it makes more as sense. As the future of war. Yeah. It, it makes more sense because the risk-to-reward ratio is better, right? Yeah. Um, there's a, a, a value on human life versus data, right? So if, 
you can still take over a country with a few keystrokes versus a standing army. Makes a little bit more sense on multiple. He sounds like he's thought about it. Yeah. Don't he sound like... Okay, what's, what's in your basement, dude? <laughs> Here's how you would do that. You would just take over. It also gives lesser powers the opportunity to enter the theater of war yeah. as opposed to our, you know, more commonly uh, known enemies. Yeah. It democratizes who can start a war. Is that right. what you just That's said? That's what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the playing field does change a little, right? Because mm -hmm. you don't need that capital for... Tanks, planes, whatever. Okay, as creepy and as weird as it is that we could be cyber attacked, that's just another way to be attacked. Yeah. So I'd be otherwise be spending money on tanks, mm -hmm. spend the money on cyber protection. Yeah. And you don't see any problem with that. Not when he owns a cyber company. <laughs> <laughs> you kidding me? <laughs> so, Stupid question. <laughs> Sorry. So, so the Department of Homeland Security, they do have the Cyber Security and Infrastructure Security Agency, and they are responsible for, you know, protecting our federal networks. And there's a few pillars of things that they do protect on a national level. Uh -huh. uh, but I think it's important, too, to, to not just think about this in terms of nation states. We also have to think about this in terms of private companies, because... Mm -hmm. The internet doesn't discriminate with whether I come into you as a private individual to make my way to, to government, right? right. Uh, so it has to be a partnership, right? Because all governments use third parties anyway, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're a XYZ random company that has government contracts, you're a potential vector. Well, I asked Susan what countries needed to do going forward to change their approach to national security issues. Let's check it out. So should the future of those meetings that you described with these heads of agency, should they have an ethicist sitting right at the same table? Because you're about well, to make a decision that affects that. the health and well-being. Right now we have lawyers. Maybe we should have lawyers and ethicists. <laughs> Did I say lawyers? No. We have national security lawyers. <laughs> I, but, but each of us actually have to be ethicists, not oh, just no. have a specialized somebody to police us because we don't think about the consequences. Everybody of should actions. be thinking about it. Absolutely. Um, it's not but, taught in school. No, and but and the other problem Maybe is your mama give it to you, but people right. otherwise don't. Exactly, and the ethics that we may apply to these questions of war and peace are not going to be the same ethics that other countries apply. And how do you therefore have global norms and rules about how to deal with these new technologies? They tried that with the Geneva Convention, and and in, to a large extent that worked. Mm -hmm. But you can observe and police and enforce. You know, those kinds of crimes. It's a lot harder to see how you police and enforce, you know, what you've taught a machine to do. Particularly or, or once it's attack. out of your control. Right. Or cyber attack or... Or disinformation. Or disinformation. leaks into a... Absolutely. I mean... So it's getting wild out there. <laughs> uh, Information is getting weaponized. Yes, absolutely. And that's exactly what we've seen. Um, with respect to how Russia's trying to corrupt our democracy and pit mm -hmm. Americans against each other. Not just it's through, working. It, it, they're effective at it. And it will work unless we are, get hip to it and work together to prevent it. Information is definitely being weaponized by domestic actors and foreign actors. And we need to find new ways to, you know, determine the quality of information and not allow the weapons to be turned against our unity and democracy. This is part of the cost of an open, free society. We have susceptibilities that closed societies don't have. That's exactly right. And that's an eternal battle. Let's hope it's an eternal battle, because oh. otherwise we lose. 
I, when I look at our susceptibilities, there's banking, there's interpersonal, just how people are treating each other, there's elections. Yeah. All of this has a cyber component to it yeah. because we now interact through our Facebook pages and and we see ads or videos. So how do you how do you balance the free movement of people through society with security risk that we face walking into it flat-footed? Yeah, well, delicately. <laughs> Thanks for that answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, like every tool, uh, it's double-edged, mm -hmm. right? So uh, we're an open and free society and we want that, uh, but there are, are, are risks to that, right? And so in particular, attention with, with our elections, uh, I point to uh, Michael Isakoff has a book called um, Russian Roulette. I uh, forgot who the co-author was. Uh, mm -hmm. But it, it's it's a really good breakdown of what happened with us in terms of what Russia did. And um, what you effectively have here is that, with, in particular with Facebook and the Cambridge Analytica scandal, where you had this company that essentially started plotting all these data points for everyone, they, I don't want to call it the equivalent, but they effectively did a genome mapping of all of our preferences and data points, mm -hmm. and that weaponized the data that you're talking about. This is what happened. So... Now they know, hey, Neil is very disposed to wanting to talk about this and talking about that. And, you know, we call them troll farms where, where yeah. there are these, these kind of fake accounts that are designed to, to seem like real people and start inflaming people and getting them into conversations. And then all of a sudden you have a polarized nation. So you, you, you effectively, because, you know, the United States is a titan, right? And so... Kind of like the Avengers in that point, right? Like, you don't beat us from the outside, right? You take, um, yeah. what was that movie? Uh, Civil War, where yeah, yeah. the guy was like, no, no, we're going to... Bucky! <laughs> Bucky, I love you! Please, stop trying to hurt us! Okay, sorry. I'm wait, wait, so, up. Heather, yeah. I, it, this sounds like something you guys never thought could or would happen. This, you oh. knew that we would have hot buttons as human mm -hmm. beings, mm -hmm. but to have that weaponized put against us, to pit right. us against each other... Well, no, I mean, it's psychological warfare. And it's yes. just basically the brain is an information processing machine. So you can manipulate people by manipulating the information that they are accessing. Right, you knew you could do that one-on-one, -on -one, but you know you can do that for an entire society. Well, yeah, well, oh, now yeah. we have the tools yeah. to do it. Yeah. Well, and well it, no, we've always had the tools to do it. So let's let's be clear. Well, the, now the, they're better, though. Yeah, they're much better yeah. and they're more effective. But the truth of the matter is, what happened with uh, what you said, Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and the weaponization of information is something that the that the military calls PSYOPs. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what it is. So why, mm -hmm. I don't understand why people don't say what things are. That is called PSYOPs. Mm -hmm. It is forbidden because it is that effective. So, you know. So what kind of policy changes do we need to put into play to protect us going forward without completely constraining our freedoms? Ooh, yeah, I mean, a, a little, a, a lot would, would work in helping with data protections. Uh, the European Union uh, is a little stronger, a lot stronger that, than we are on that. So it would help if our data was treated like the commodity that it is. Um, what does that entail? I don't know what you mean when you say access for, access to access your to personal data. information. But not only that, I mean, also like just restrictions on disinformation. I mean, you know, I was talking to an executive Facebook who, who actually left Facebook because um, they're not putting restrictions on disinformation and political ads. That's really dangerous. So I think there are places where we can in the sort of private sector, yeah. you know, or at least that, let there be policies in place so that, you know, nonsense isn't getting out there, at least in the political realm, which influences how we vote. Yeah. And the media, they have to be the watchdogs they're supposed to be, not lapdogs, not saying... Watchdogs, not lapdogs. Yeah. Oh, I like that. 
That's the quote no. of the day. All right, right on. No. <laughs> because you can't just say, oh, the administration said this, and that's it. Like, your job is to question that, right? And so the public trusts the media to give that information. We, we've seen very recently that has not always been the case. And Heather, so we're being manipulated without even knowing it. Mm. Yeah. That's, the, that's the insidious that's part the of it. That's the thing. Most of us think we're making decisions of our own free will, but we're really doing things because we're being unconsciously manipulated all the time. It's because so. we're all in a simulation and someone else is programming our behavior. Oh. Sweet. <laughs> I'm sorry, we got to <laughs> end. On we that got, note. We, we, got, we got to end there. See, well, you gotta, we got to do another what, show what around you, to? okay? We're going to do that. <laughs> we, we, appreciate <laughs> <laughs> So we got to end it there. Heather, thanks for coming. As thanks usual, Chuck. Hey. My man. Always good. All right. This has been Star Talk, and I've been your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. As always, keep looking up. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.